This is the Home Pro Success Podcast, bringing you interviews with today's home improvement leaders and trades business game changers. Tune in to get actionable insights to grow your own business. Here's your host, Corey Phillip. Hey everyone, Corey here. Today I've got Josh Patrick on the show, whom I formally introduce in our conversation. You're going to want to tune in as we discuss the challenges home service businesses have in setting up reoccurring revenue models. What is a reoccurring sales model and how it can benefit trades businesses, particularly the ones that struggle to get set up with a reoccurring revenue model? How contractors can use the Scrum software methodology to get more efficient and increase velocity? What strategic excellence means for a small trades business? And lots more. Let's get into it with Josh Patrick. Josh Patrick, man, welcome to the Home Pro Success Show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I'm glad to have you on here because you are an expert in something that most service businesses need to think of, need to consider, and need to plan for. And that's making the business sustainable and possibly exiting the business. So many of us operate with our businesses, uh, you know, just kind of in a day-to-day with no long-term plan, which is not the best way to do things because as we know, life happens, things happen, and at some point, we might want to exit. So Josh is an expert in this field here, and he's worked with several home service companies. Why don't we just start off with Josh? Why don't you tell us what the biggest problems you see in home service businesses are with regard to at least exiting or the business continuing onwards in the future? This is true with all construction companies and not just home service businesses. Although home service businesses actually have some cool opportunities. The biggest problem that a home service business would have is a lack of recurring revenue. In other words, you go out, you do a job, and now you have no other work unless you do another bid for another job along the way. And there's no, you know, if I'm buying your business and anybody who's a buyer, what they're looking for is they're looking for a system that the business has and a recurring revenue model because they're buying cash flow. They're not buying the business. Correct. Correct. You have any examples of recurring revenue models that you have seen? I know recurring revenue is very popular. A lot of people talk about it, but I will say as a home service business owner and uh, someone that collaborates and interacts with a lot of other trades business owners, we all struggle struggle, struggle, struggle with getting recurring revenue. That is, uh, I mean, it's actually a pickle. It's something that's always on my mind. I think about it 24 seven. It's something that in my company, we really haven't been able to pull off. And I know there's a lot of other people in the same boat. Well, you guys do. What is it that your business does again, Corey? I'm sorry. That's all right. No problem. We do patio screen enclosures, exterior contracting work. Okay, so your business is a really tough business for recurring revenue. In fact, I probably would encourage you not to think about recurring revenue. I would encourage you to think about a recurring revenue sales model. Explain more on that. Meaning that if your sales model, if your marketing and sales model can create new customers on a predictable basis, you don't really have a recurring revenue model, but you do have a, you do have a recurring cash flow model because you're going to be doing with different customers along the way. And you want to help these customers become connectors to recommend you to other people. So you might put together a frequent buyer program because if you're doing out outdoor sort of stuff and you're in South Florida or you're in Florida, people are going to probably do more than one project over the lifetime they own their house. So you want to make sure that they come back to you when they do that next project. 
So frequent buyer program. And also what I'm hearing there is uh, well, what you called a recurring sales model. Is that what yeah, you call it? Recurring sales model means that if I do this, if I, if mm -hmm. I put this type of Facebook ad out, because I know mm -hmm. that you're really good doing Facebook ads, and you know those Facebook ads are going to create you 10 sales conversations. And from those 10 sales conversations, you're going to get five contracts you know that you can continue to do that for a long period of time until Facebook ads stop working. Now, if you're smart, you're always going to be testing a couple of other venues besides Facebook ads to make sure that if and when Facebook falls on its face, it's more an if than a when, but correct. <laughs> you, know, you want to have a backup of say, okay, Facebook didn't work, but Google AdWords is working now or LinkedIn ads are working, or Instagram is working. You know, there's like lots of different avenues to create buzz and happiness about what you're doing. You might even do a direct mail thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm following what you're saying there. Uh, and that's why I think it's quite important that service businesses in particular, contractors, well, all businesses, tracking your cost per lead so that you can, you know, follow this essentially recurring sales model where you know that as much money as you, or you know, for X dollars that you put into this advertising source or sales model, you know exactly what you're going to get out of it. You track your cost per lead, you know your cost per lead is $20, $30, $40. Some cost per leads can get quite high across the trades as we're selling projects that go well into the five six figures. But once you know that cost per lead, then you can A, try other avenues and benchmark against it, see where you get a lower cost per lead. But at the same time, you've got something that is scalable. And when you're selling your business or going to exit the business, you can say, hey, if you want to grow the business, we dump this much more money into this advertising source. And this is the kind of return on it. That's what I'm hearing you say, Josh, for businesses like mine, where it's really hard to, or nearly impossible to get a, a recurring model going out right, there. Yeah, your business is really tough. But if you happen to own an HVAC company, you own yes. a plumbing company, you own, you know, something like that, where you have a maintenance component, you can mm -hmm. set up a membership for your customers. So they become members of your company and for x amount of dollars per year they get a set of services absolutely absolutely so, for everyone in those maintenance come or maintenance uh more maintenance oriented trades their plumbing hvac electrical might electrical uh, concern i've seen electricians do it certainly do it yeah is there a certain uh price point or anything that you see works well for these type of businesses in these trades you know it, it comes down to what the perceived value is by the customer Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you own a security company, your recurring revenue is the monitoring, which tends to be somewhere between 20 and $49 a month. Now, if you have commercial monitoring that goes up to, you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars a month. So if I was in the security business, I would be focusing on commercial accounts versus residential accounts because commercial accounts are more complicated. They have a bigger pocketbook. You're going to get bigger jobs and your recurring revenue will be a bigger number because there's a more complicated system that you're monitoring. And they're Absolutely. going to see the perceived value as several hundred dollars versus the homeowner where you're competing with Comcast and all the other mm -hmm. you know, cable providers out there. And they're selling this stuff for $29 a month. 
Now, they're not doing what you do at $49 a month, but you still have a, a tough conversation saying, why are you worth $20 more than Comcast? I'd rather have that conversation about why I'm worth $85 more and getting $300 a month than getting $49 a month. And frankly, my cost of delivering that service is not going to be five times as high. It's going to be twice as high. Correct, correct. There is uh, there's something to be said there about going for well, larger value projects. I think there's a saying out there, something to the effect of you can sell gold or you can sell rocks. Both of them take the same amount of effort and skill to sell. Which one are you going to pick? I don't know if that's the exact verbiage, but uh, that's, that, pretty, that's how it resonates close. in my head. I mean, my yeah. first business was the food service and vending business. And what I learned was it took just as much effort to sell an account that had 500 employees as a selling mm -hmm. account that had 50 employees. Yep. So I, I could totally agree. I could totally see that, you know, in practice. And, you know, mind you, the, uh, the account with only 50 employees is probably going to make you work harder because to them, you represent a larger portion of their budget. And at the same time, considering the size and scale, you add less value to, uh, to their business. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So the other thing that if I was in a, in the trades business, and this is a missed opportunity for, I would say, 99.9% .9 of the trade companies I've ever looked at. There's an exceptional one electrical contractor who actually started me down this road. But there's a software methodology. It's called Scrum or Agile Technologies. If you're a Google products user, you notice that Gmail and Chrome are updated about every three weeks. Correct. They don't send you an email. They just... You have to restart it because if you don't, you find all those extensions you have in your browser don't work anymore. Don't work. Yeah. By restarting, you've reset that. Now, the methodology that Google is using is called Scrum. And Scrum essentially is a, a development that came out of W. Edwards Deming, who wrote, was the original quality control person back in the in early World War II in the he was one of the reasons the United States war machine was so successful. After the war, American tech, American manufacturers pretty much ignored him. He ended up going to Japan and working with Toyota. And the Toyota production system, which is known as Lean, mm -hmm. came out of working with Demi. Out of the Lean manufacturing came Agile Technologies. And what Agile Technologies does say, here's the whole scope of my job. For the next two or three weeks, this is the piece of that job we're going to do. And we're going to put that into production. And every day, we're going to have a five-minute meeting, say, are we on track? Are we off track? What do we need to do? At the end of those two or three-week periods, we're going to have produced something, which is a deliverable. We're going to look back what we did over the two or three weeks beforehand, what worked well, what didn't go well, what can we improve on the next time? And then we go back and we look at our backlog and we move another two or three weeks worth of work in there. And we do the same thing over and over and over again. And where the secret sauce is, is what's called a retrospective, where you look back over the last couple of weeks, you did the work and you say, what went well? What didn't go well? What can we improve on? You do this over and over and over. What happens is you're increasing what they, what's called in the software world velocity, which means how fast you get through projects. Now, if I'm in the trade world, that's a magic bullet for me.
because I can go out there and bid the same thing my competitors are doing, but by pre-planning the job before I ever walk on site, I'm going to do it 30 or 40% more efficiently than my competitors and get the same price. So instead of me having a utilization of 60 or $70 an hour, if I can improve my, my efficiency, my utilization is going to go to 120 to $130 an hour. All that extra money flows right to my bottom line because I'm not increasing my costs one cent. Got it. Got it. And that ties into a lot of what I say. The number one cost driver in our service businesses is our labor. So many people like to tear apart their income statement and look at everything below the line. Uh, you know, look at the utility bill, look at the insurance for the vehicles, look at the coffee maker and say, hey, where can we save some money? Where can we pinch some pennies? What can we cut out of here to make more money? Whereas what you really need to be doing is focusing on the labor and how well you're utilizing the labor to get a better return. And uh, Josh, that should line up pretty well with what you're talking about right here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what the whole point is here is that, you know, if it takes me a thousand hours to do a job or it takes my competitors a thousand hours to do a job, because we all know pretty much how much everybody, you know, what their bids are for everybody else and Correct. how effective they are. So if it takes my competitors a thousand hours to do the job, it takes me 700 hours to do the same job and I charge 5% less than my competitor, I'm actually going to be 25% more profitable. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. So on that note, you know, going back to, uh, you know, strategically pulling this off, you're saying that we should, or you'd advise contractors and trades businesses to block everything off in a two to three week chunk look at what you got there, have your daily meeting five minutes, note everything you can do to improve, and then reset the benchmark for the following chunk of time. Am I following yeah, that? Yeah, you basically, it's not so much a benchmark as you're saying, how much work can we get done over the next two or three weeks? And you're going to find the amount of work that you can get done will keep increasing and increasing and increasing because you can be making these small improvements on a continual basis. And every once in a while, those small improvements, you'll get something that's a gigantic improvement. And it's always something you didn't expect, something you didn't plan for. But by just trying small experiments, you find some things work, some things don't work. I call those fail fast, fail cheap. Mm -hmm. Fire bullets, then cannons. That's, uh, right. who is that? That I forget, I forget the author that wrote that. Uh, it's in the good to great Jim Collins. Right. Right. So trying a lot of little things, quickly cutting what, what doesn't work and, uh, you know, well, and, and building some... on what does work. The other thing is, is that too many times in business, we spend too much time focusing on fixing the things that don't work. Where the real opportunity is focusing on the things that do work and how do we make them better. That's a, that's a pretty deep one right there. And I think myself included as a trades business owner, I do focus a lot on what doesn't work and trying to kind of fix these little bullet holes, you know, or I don't know if that's the right metaphor, well, it's but it's not always the best opportunity. I mean, I mean, if you have a big leak in your process, you mm -hmm. need to fix that. If yes. you have a customer satisfaction problem, you need to fix that. Mm -hmm. But if you're just focusing on the mistakes that you're making that nobody ever notices, nobody ever sees, but you see them internally, you're missing your biggest opportunity, which is focusing on the things that do work and building on that. You know, when I talk to people about, and this, by the way, for the owners of the companies, this is really important. I always ask this question, is it more important for you to focus on your strengths 
or to fix your weaknesses? Well, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think the Corey up until today would say fix your weaknesses, but I have a feeling I'm wrong on that one. You are wrong on that one. So let me give you an example. When I was in high school, I, or when I was in elementary school, I really wanted to be in the band. So my mm -hmm. mother talked the band director into letting me in the band, even though I was tested as being tone deaf and rhythmically not there. Mm -hmm. Now, through hard work and practice, I made it to the area Allstate band. And then, and I was an okay musician, but I was never a great musician because I was always working on my weaknesses. So through hard work, anybody can make it all the way up to mediocre in anything. But if you want to be world-class, work on what you're good at. So if I'm improving my strengths, I can become world-class. If instead I manage my weaknesses by hiring people to do what I'm not very good at, I'm getting that completely off my plate and I'm only focusing on what I'm world-class at. If I'm doing work where I'm world-class, I'm doing work that's, for me, several thousand dollars an hour. If I'm trying to improve my weaknesses, I'm usually working on stuff that's worth 15 or $20 an hour. So that's where focusing on the right type of work that you're doing in your business becomes incredibly important. That's a, that's a very key thing right there. I know a lot of us, myself included, we focus too much on doing, you know, the administrative stuff. I know I'll even find myself answering phones some days, which uh, probably is not the best use of your time. Do you have any kind of system or strategy for identifying what sh you should focus your time on and where to direct it? Because it's really easy to say this stuff. And I know in practice, you know, everyone out there listening, I know we're like, yeah, well, we should focus on these big picture items. We should focus on what we can do to grow our business. But when the phone rings and I know that I can answer it and I've got the highest chance of selling the project or booking a call out of it and we do need to sell more. And, you know, I know that my office staff, while they're good, I am better I just can't help it. I just want to pick up that phone and, uh, you know, talk to the customer, book the service call and get it out there. What can we do to kind of get out of our own hair, get out of our own way? And what should we be focusing our attention on? You just have to learn. I mean, I, I just read Shonda Rhimes book, My Year of Yes, which I love. Mm -hmm. And one of her yeses was yes to no. In saying yes to the word no. <laughs> yes to the word no. You have to say yes. I know I can answer this better, but my person sitting next to me is good enough. If I start doing that person's job, I'm never working on the activities that are going to move my business to strategic excellence. I'm just going to be a tactically great company or a tactically good company where I'm a, a technician having an entrepreneurial cramp. I'm not a technician who has become a business owner. Business owners do not do that stuff. Technicians do that stuff. So if you want to be a real business owner, you have to learn how to do the behavior of a real business owner. And you got to take a step back. Yeah. Take a step back and, uh, you know, let everyone do their things. And I say this a lot. You should be having systems and processes in there. Uh, you mentioned a key phrase there, strategic excellence. What does that look like to you in terms of a small business? Because we, you know, open this conversation by going in and saying, hey, what would you recommend here? What, what do you look for in a, in a small service business or something? Where do you see strategic excellence at for a trades business? 
Well, you're delivering a service that is superior to the other people in your in your uh, industry. Now, that's the outside thing. But strategic excellence means, are you doing the right things in your company to make your company as successful as it can be? And that's never tactics. It's always strategy. What type of Facebook ads or what type of marketing should we be doing? That's strategic. How do we plan our jobs? That's strategic. How do we review what's been going on before? That's strategic. Focusing on what works and seeing how we make that better, that's strategic. Understanding what the drivers are for my business, putting together a dashboard, having a weekly meeting around those numbers is a strategic activity because you're going to be focusing on the things that move your company forward. And one of my stupid sayings, and I have lots of these stupid sayings, is that which gets measured gets done. Absolutely. So if I'm focusing on the things that move the needle and I'm measuring it, I'm doing strategic activities. Do you have an idea of how many strategic activities or how many needles you should be trying to move at one time? Like, what, like what do you as think, you know? As, as few as possible. As few as possible. So simple and effective. Uh, I mean, is that in your mind, because there's a million numbers out there you can look at, is that two, five, ten? You know, where do you see this? Five and seven. Somewhere between five and seven. And uh, it sounds like, you know, with the companies you work with, you're building out or getting some type of dashboard and system in place to where they're consistently in your face? Like in your business, I can tell you what I would be using for dashboard numbers in your business. And let's hear it. Not a hundred percent, but, but many of them, I would want to know how much cash I have on hand every week. Key number. Okay. I would want to know what my receivables are. Key number. And I want to know if any of my receivables are over 30 days. And I want to make sure they're under 30 days. I want to know what my backlog is, which means is how much business have I booked that will be done in the future that isn't done today. And mm-hmm. if I expect my backlog to be six weeks and I find it's five weeks, I know I have a potential problem coming up. If I backlog is six weeks and I find it's 12 weeks, I know I still have a problem coming up and I'm going to have uncappy customers because I'm not going to be able to get to them on the time frame they expect. So if I'm looking at a backlog and I'm saying it's, six weeks, I expect, but I've got, I've done really well in selling and I'm up to 10 weeks. I need to be communicating with my sales force saying, when you're selling, you got to say it's 10 weeks, not six weeks. Correct. That, that becomes a huge, huge, huge disconnect in uh, all trade service businesses. The sales guys are out there saying, well, naturally they want to gravitate towards as short of a time frame as possible, which generally happens to roll off people's tongue as one to two weeks, no matter what the actual time frame is. And I constantly have to go out there and correct that and uh, hammer that into my sales team's head every single day where we are currently at in the backlog. So we got cash, receivables, backlog is crucial. I mean, that's that's where you're at for budgeting. You know, if you are well backed out, you know, you have to adjust your sales team accordingly. If you're short, you need to spike up the sales in some way or lower prices to get more? When your backlog gets high, that's a signal for you to raise your prices for a time being. Correct. Absolutely. And your backlog gets low, that's a signal to lower your prices for the time being. (laughs) So, you know, having a price list that you publish is fine, but you got to be willing to change that price list if you're going to publish it or 
another strategic activity is is what I'd call perfect pricing models. Well, uh, well, do you have anything else to add to those uh, in, to the kind of barometers or the metrics that you're looking at? We got cash, receivable, backlog, and then we can go into you know what you call your strategic pricing or perfect um, um, pricing. Also, I'm sorry. It's also I want to know how many sales calls are being made. I want to know how many proposals are being put out. I want to know the dollar value of those proposals being out. And I want to know how many closed sales and the dollar value of closed sales I have for every week. So I can look at the efficiency of my sales team. So basically see how many deals these, uh, the sales team is closing and bringing in. Well, I also want to see what's the percent. I mean, if they're putting out 10 proposals and closing one deal, I've got a problem. You do have a problem, yeah. If I'm putting out 10 proposals and I'm closing eight, I've still got a problem. And my problem is I'm too cheap. <laughs> I'm serious about that. Oh, I know, I know 110%. You know, there, there is a certain time and place to raise prices. And I do advocate, and I think you'll probably agree with me on their positioning your business as a premium service provider. Because if you're not, you're going to end up in a race to the bottom, you know, with Chuck and a truck, so to say. Right. Well, if you're doing that, you're, you're wasting your time. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, cash, receivables, backlog, and sales opportunity, four good metrics for most trade service businesses. I, I think, in my opinion, the people that are doing larger scale projects, if you're a new home builder doing extensive remodels, in that case, well, cash is crucial, but you also have to kind of manage your unearned revenue to a much higher degree than somebody that's in a uh, high turnover business like a trade service, whereas we do the work and we collect relatively quickly. And those businesses where you're doing draws, unearned revenue is something that's huge to manage. And, you're be and it can, you know, billing. I mean, I, yeah. I see with trade businesses all the time that they get busy and then they forget the bill. Yeah. And, so, and the people you're billing, they're not going to pay you for 30 days. So if you're 60 days late and get the bill out, you've just put yourself into a 90 day position, whether you want to or not. Yeah, you are 110% right on the money. I hear from a lot of contractors that they struggle getting paid. And, you know, as cliche as it sounds, you need to have a system in place for getting paid. And for my company and such, that's just simply an automated reminder that gets sent out every week. Uh, and that gets sent out through a program called Boomerang, which we schedule the emails. Unfortunately, our CRM doesn't let us schedule these things out, but we send out that automated reminder every weekly that gets increasingly progressive in tone with regard to our collecting so that the customers know we're not going to forget about it. I think a lot of customers hope that maybe you forget about it. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know what to say on that, but sometimes well, the bills get out further. What you do is you don't pay your salespeople their commission until you collect the money. Whoa. Hey there. Real quick, if you're enjoying this podcast, do me a quick favor and head on over to the rating section of your podcast player. Leave a star rating and drop a comment. It's your feedback that gets me amped up for this podcast. Now let's get back to the show. That is one thing that works. We don't actively do that in my company, but I know another company in my area that does. Uh, it's a flooring company. And when they... Uh, but when they sell a project, the salesperson is responsible through to collections and the salesperson does not get paid until they collect the money on that. And I can tell you that the day after it's completed, you're getting about five phone calls from that salesperson. I might be a little bit aggressive, but they certainly, they certainly get paid. And I have seen that in practice, the motivation that that kind of puts in to collect. Well, again, you have to manage your salespeople saying, look, it, if you can't go out and harass people to get paid, but this is how we work here. 
And if the receiver was over 30 days, it's your job to collect it. Because if you don't, I'm not paying you for it. Or I may have paid you for it. I'm going to deduct it from your draw because we're, we haven't been paid. And there's lots of ways of handling that sort of issue. You know, if I was, if I had over aggressive salespeople about that, I would probably say, okay, I'll pay you when the job is done. But if we're over 30 days, that commission is reduced, is, is taken away from your paycheck. Absolutely. You get paid. And if it's over 90 days, you're never getting it back again. So in what we just said there, you'd mentioned your perfect pricing model, but I also want to touch a little bit on uh, compensation of salespeople since we kind of went down that road. What compensation model do you find works best? I know there's a lot of people out there in one camp that say, hey, we want the best customer service, so we just offer a fixed salary for our salespeople. We don't believe in commission. On the other hand, there's a totally different camp of people that will say strictly commission salespeople only. Where do you fall into that and what do you see that kind of works best? Or is there something that works best? Well, it, it depends on the personality and the culture of the company you've got. My own personal preference is I don't pay salespeople commissions. I pay them bonuses. And I pay bonuses based on how well the company is doing and how well they've done as a salesperson. Now, the truth is, I've yet to ever see a salesperson make a sale by themselves. It's always a team effort. Somebody is helping you along the way. So if I'm paying you, the salesperson, the commission, I'm not paying the other people who are helping a commission. And those other people helping are probably as important and sometimes even more important than the salesperson is. I want to give you an example, and this is a different industry altogether. It's in the headhunting world. My daughter works for a headhunting company down in the Boston area, and they do high-level C-suite searches where they're often placing people that make three, four, five million dollars a year, and the commission would be over a million dollars for the headhunter who places that. Oh, wow. Now, she just did a, a placement, worked with this headhunter to do a placement, and his commission was a million dollars. He gave Alexa a $100 gift card. Now, it was nice that he gave my daughter a $100 gift card, but at the same time, it's sort of like a slap in the face. Here I am making a million dollars on this commission, and you're going yeah. to get a $100 bonus from me. But if you had not done a good enough job on what your piece was, we wouldn't have gotten the deal in the first place. So does that make Correct. any sense? No, it doesn't make any sense. So if I was the owner of that company, I would be carving off fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 from that deal in spreading it around the people who are the support folks that made that deal possible so they could get a piece of it also. That, uh, that makes me think of a lot of things in my mind because I think that at my company, we have a lot of people behind the scenes. You know, there's more to our administrative team than just people selling. That might get, you know, might get left out of the whole compensation structure that we offer. So what we do at my company, for those of you guys curious out there, is it's a fixed rate salary with bonuses. But then again, there are administrative people that are sending out documents, making sure all the documents are in line that aren't getting compensated. So I think that's a huge opportunity, particularly in trades businesses that reach a size of scale to where you've got an actual admin facility or admin team, I should say, not facility, admin team behind the scenes. Look for ways to incorporate them and reward everyone based on the sale amount. That's... Uh, yeah, one of the things that I, I always... I'm thinking of that as I'm, as I'm speaking. I'm like, wow, what are we going to do at my company? But I'm going to need to sit down and think on that later for well, sure. I'll give you the solution for it really easily. Let's hear it. 
you want to have, I think everybody should have a bonus program in their company. And I think the bonus program should be based on company profits hitting a hurdle rate. And once you hit that hurdle rate, means like, let's say I'm doing a million dollars a year and I mm -hmm. expect my profits to be $100,000. Anything over $100,000, a piece of that is going to be split up among everybody in the company in a bonus. And depending on your job, depending on the amount of years you've been with me, you get a certain amount of points. So let's say there's seven people in the company, and between those seven people, we have uh, 50 points. And there's $100,000, or there's $50,000 for that's in the bonus pool. So with 50 points, one point is worth $1,000. Some mm -hmm. people are going to have 12 points, so they're going to get 12000 some people will have two points and they'll get $2,000. And you have the points assigned on the importance and difficulty of the job and how many years somebody has within your company. You do a combination of those two. Now, to make this work, you have to have what's called open book management, which means you have to be willing to share the financial results that your company has. And I know every time I say this, people say, well, I can't share my numbers for two reasons. One is my employees are going to think I make too much money. And the second is, what if my competitors see it? Now, I'm going to tell you that there's nothing in your profit and loss statement or your balance sheet that your competitors are going to be able to get that will give them an advantage over what you do. It tells them nothing about what no you do. No competitive advantage lies in the profit and loss statement. Right, nothing, zero. Yeah. The second thing is you're making too much money. Well, that's, that's among the dumbest things I hear people say. And, and I've done this experiment several times. If your company does a million dollars, go out and find the first three people that work in your company you run across. Say, our company did a million dollars last year. What do you think we made in profits? And what do you think the number will come back at? Probably 900,000. It's usually not that high. It's usually somewhere no. between 30 and 50%. Yeah, it's, it's usually so, higher than what most people expect. I will say way that. Way higher. I mean, yeah. I, mean, I see there's almost no contractors out there that make more than 10% bottom lines. Correct. There are some, but there are, but it's, a real, it's a real rarity. Mm -hmm. General contractors, there are literally none that do over 10%. But in the trade, so you can get there if you run your business really well. So if my employees think I'm making $500,000 and I'm making $100,000, don't you think I should educate them around why it's 100000 and where that other $900,000 actually went? Absolutely, absolutely. When you phrase it like that, it turns this whole thing kind of on its head because everyone's afraid of, well, you know, people are going to know how much money I make. That's going to be too much. But in general, generally, I will say, and I agree with you, your employees think that you are making way more money than you actually are. And, and that's what it sounds is, like you found out. Yep. The truth is they don't care. When Thomas, you make what they do care about is, am I being paid a fair salary compared to my buddy who works for another exterior contracting company doing the same work? Yes, absolutely. They don't compare them to you. They compare themselves to other people doing the same job. That's it. And I do advocate certainly, you know, paying your employees more than the market will, uh, more than the market will bear, but also holding them to a higher standard. Yeah, what I, here's what I advocate. I advocate paying my employees the market and they're going to earn the excess money that will get them to the 90 percentile through the bonus system. That's a very efficient way of doing it there. 
Well, it's it essentially it says, look at and when you do a group bonus for the entire company and not individual bonus, what you will eventually find out that happens is your good people kick the rear end of your marginal people because they see their marginal work taking money out of their pocket. Absolutely, absolutely. Pulls the whole team together right. and gets your key players to actually be your quarterbacks in this, yes. uh, in this scenario. And you'll so. find that they'll actually start kicking you in the rear end to get you to do the stuff you need to do in your business to make it more profitable. That would certainly be good for most of us. I will say that. So if you get some other people on board, some other people on the bandwagon, get some support behind you. Because I know as business owners, some days it feels like we have nobody that's kind of watching our back or sometimes we don't have any motivation. You know, if you can pull your staff into it, that would certainly help. Now, on that note, we're starting to run down here on time and there's something I don't want to pass up. You mentioned a perfect pricing model. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, essentially it's, well, there's several pieces to it, but the two most important pieces is, are you hearing no because you're too expensive? And if you're not, you need to be. That means you're too cheap. And the second is, are you selling to the biggest pocketbook you can? You know, for example, you have the opportunity where you are of selling to people who have $4 million houses, and you Absolutely. have the opportunity to sell people that have $100,000 houses. Correct. If I was in your shoes and unless we had fully saturated the million dollar house market, my salespeople would only be allowed to call on million dollar houses because an extra $30,000 on a million on a $400,000 job is nothing compared to a $30,000 extra on a $100,000 job because you're not going to get it. Absolutely. So the bigger the pocketbook is, the higher your pricing can be. And what about when those people say, well, that's too much money? Now, you know, how often should you be hearing that? Because, you know, you just mentioned uh, saying no or some customers that say no because your price is too high. How do you factor that in? Uh, and when do you know to lower prices? I or would say if you're you not hearing keep that going? 10%, 20% of the time, you're not high enough. 10 to 20% of the time, you should be hearing no because your price is too high. Yep. So that's a key takeaway there. Uh, I certainly advocate, you know, knowing your numbers and being a premium service provider, which your views on that certainly align with mine. Uh, at my company, we're always targeting the, you know, the, the most valuable projects we can, which subsequently is also going to be the higher value homes. That's one of the cool things as trades businesses that we do have as an advantage is being able to target regionally, at least online, we can target by zip code and target regionally. So you guys do that really, really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> if I remember correctly, you have 60 employees now? Yes. Yeah, a little over that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're not in the small business world. You no, we're not. Built, yeah. You have actually built a business that's likely going to be saleable. It's going to be a bit of a challenge to sell, but it's going to be saleable. Mm -hmm. And you're going to need to have a business intermediary who understands what the magic sauce in your business is. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, at that size, I will say we do have to, we do have to, you know, go down and go into kind of a lower value of a home when we're trying to sell our projects. So do we have the whole high end market saturated? I wouldn't say saturated. We cover a, you know, really good share of it. We capture it. But you know, growing wise, we do have to open our doors a little bit more, uh, expand, and in some cases take some projects, I think, that 
I don't want to say that are too low for us, but we do have to, you know, reduce our barriers as we kind of come into a, a sizable company where the focus is more on filling our systems and keeping the whole pipeline in there. So but for, what I would be doing in that case is I would be opening up a division that specializes in lower end houses, giving limited offerings, which you're doing over and over and over again. So you're not doing one offs. When you're working a $3 million house, it's a one off. Yeah. If you're working a $400,000 house, you can do the same project over and over and over and over again. There might be a slight variation, but not a lot. So instead of trying to provide, now you can always offer the custom, but you say, look, it's going to be twice as expensive as this. And people are going to look at the difference between the two. And you say, by the way, we've done 125 of these. We know yep. we're really good at it. Yeah. There, there's something to be said there for, um, you know, for specialization and breaking the company up in two divisions. But I think that, you know, that's a very strategic thing to do and has to kind of be done at the right time. Well, but back uh, reaching to again. <laughs> back to strategy, yeah. <laughs> knowing, knowing which market segment is powerful, knowing your market segment, your profitable customers, what pain points uh, and pleasure points your target customer has. That's all some very deep stuff. But you just so, mentioned selling the business. Well, I'll let you go on there and then we'll go into, uh, before we wrap up, I want to talk about what we could do or what a saleable service business looks like and how people can start positioning themselves either to be saleable or to be continuous. Well, this is true for about any business in the world. There's two things you need to have a saleable business. There's actually more than two things, but there's two big, big things which will keep your business from being saleable. One is we talked about having a recurring revenue model. Mm -hmm. Whether that's your sales model or it's a true recurring revenue model, you have to have a recurring revenue model. The second thing is the owner of the business, in your case, you and your partner, would have to become operationally irrelevant in your company, which means you're not involved in the day-to-day -day operations at all. Because when a buyer comes in, they don't want you. They want your employees. They want your systems. They want your cash flow. They want your marketing methodology. They do not want the owner. Correct. And... If you do those two things, your business will be saleable. Will it be highly saleable or just saleable? That depends on a bunch of other things. I mean, obviously, the bigger your business becomes, the more systematic your business becomes, the less the owners are involved in day-to-day -day operations, the more you have a recurring revenue model of some sort, the higher your business becomes as far as becoming saleable. I call that having a sale-ready company. Now, if you're one of those service business folks and you say, I don't want to have more than 10 people in my company, and I frankly, I don't want to have to manage people, and I don't want to have to learn how to delegate, and I want to be able to be what I've been doing and do it. So what those folks do is what I recommend. I call that the wind-down strategy, which is they never want to sell their business. They just want to wind it down. So, for example, if I'm a let's say I'm a, uh, a house painter. Painting contractor. I, a painting contractor. I've got five people on my crew and I'm out there painting a lot myself. And I don't want to be out there painting a lot myself. So I stopped going out and painting, but I still have my five-person crew. Now, one mm -hmm. of those people becomes my lead person. They're not going to be a supervisor. They're just sort of keeping track of things when they go there. Yep. And if I actually want to work less, I take, I, I pretend I have the 80-20 thing going on. Do you know what 80-20 is? Yes. Okay. 80% of your results come from 20% of your inputs. Mm -hmm. So if I have five projects 
a month. What I want to do is I want to cut that down to one project a month. And I want to have a crew of two instead of a crew of five. And I want that one project a month to be my very most profitable project. Now, if you do this correctly, you're going to end up probably making more money with your one project a month than you did on the five projects a month. Correct. Because I can see that. What you've done is you have to learn what is the profile of your most profitable clients, whether you're in a contracting business, you're a wealth manager, you're an accountant, you're a lawyer, you're an engineer, you're a scrum consultant, any one of these businesses, you're going to have to figure out, like if I was to come and ask you, Corey, give me a demographic and psychographic profile of your five best customers. You would after would take you some time to figure that out, but you would figure that out, and then I would say, okay, that's all you're going to sell to. Absolutely, that's how we do things. Essentially, we do have our uh, we do have three customer target avatars, or they're basically three variations. You know, three very close, and all of our advertising content and marketing content is geared towards speaking to those three avatars. Well, that's that's a good that's a good. Now you have to take those avatars and say, let's do a P and L on each one of these jobs we've done. Mm -hmm. See, I'm a big fan. I love people do P and Ls on all the jobs they do because job costing. Find oftentimes is what you think is your most profitable job because it's the biggest job may not Usually be your isn't. most profitable job. And I can almost promise you that your small jobs are not your most profitable jobs, but it's usually someplace in that mid range where it's not as competitive, it's not as price competitive, because you don't have 19 people trying to get it. But it might not be the $200,000 job, it might be the $80,000 job. And unless you're doing P&Ls and all your jobs and getting a sense of where you're making your money, you really never know that. Again, another Absolutely. activity. So what I'm hearing there is, you know, for the, you know, smaller than say 10 man operation, the one guy, five man crew, you were saying just focus on one target customer and focus on doing everything great for that one target customer and having the premium pricing to yes. make your business as simple and efficient as possible. Right. And be willing to wind down your business. So instead of doing 10 jobs a month, you go to eight jobs a month and you go to six jobs a month, then you go to four jobs a month and eventually you stop working. But you have to be pre-funding your retirement. There we go. You need to be putting enough money. Big takeaway. And you need to have, I mean, I have qualified retirement plans we do, which are 401k plans, profit sharing plans, a thing mm -hmm. called a cash balance plan, where I, the question I ask is, how much money would you like to save for retirement? Because I have yet to have somebody tell me they want to save more than the government allows. Like we have some plans with people over 50 years old where the owner is putting away $200,000 a year, $250,000 a year, tax deductible into their retirement plan. Wow, that is a, that's a pretty impressive number there at $200,000, $250,000 a year tax deductible. Yes. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I'm very familiar with the finance world and uh, the value of compounding annual returns. I'm sure, Josh, you're going to agree with me on this. The sooner you start that, the longer duration that you have to earn uh, you know, compounding returns, the far better off you'll be in the future. Yeah, I mean, a guy like your age, somebody your age, you could be putting away thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, 
if you're putting away thirty or forty thousand dollars a year, by the time you get to retirement, you're going to have somewhere between three and five million dollars put away. Absolutely, yeah. So start stashing that money now, so that when or if the time comes, you know that you do have to start winding down the business, you've got uh, well, you've got a nice little nest egg built up there. Yeah, you don't have a need to sell your business. So if you decide just to close it and walk away, you can do that. Absolutely. All right, Josh. Well, it's been good having you on the show here. We covered a lot of ground. Certainly going to have you back on the show. Talk about you know tons more stuff here in terms of getting businesses lined up to sell or positioning for an exit. Uh, why don't you tell everyone how they can connect with you or reach out to you should they want to do that? The easiest way to find me is just, uh, I'll give you my easy email for people to remember. It's jpatrick, letter jpatrick at askjoshpatrick.com. I have several websites. You can go to www.stage2planning.com. That's number two. That's our wealth management site. You can go to www.sustainablebusiness.co. That's our consulting site. And if you want to go and buy my book, you can either go to Amazon where you can buy it in print or buy it as a Kindle, or you can go to my website, which is www.sustainablethebook.com. If you buy it from my website, you get to have a free 20-minute strategy call with me, and I'll guarantee you'll get at least one good take-home idea, if not 17, but at least one. <laughs> and I also wrote a 37-page ebook, which is the how-tos for what's in the book, because the book is called Sustainable, a fable about creating an economically and personally sustainable business. And the book is a novel, so you kind of need to know how to do the stuff I talk about in there. And the ebook does that. All right. Lots of good resources there. I'll be sure to link to all these in the show notes. Josh, thanks for being on the show today, man. My pleasure. Thank you. You've reached the end of another episode of the Home Pro Success Podcast. Connect with us and join our collaborative Facebook group at homeprosuccess.com.